and welcome to episode 224 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast. I'm Ryan Top, and I'm joined this week by Paul Noonan. How's it going, Paul? Going all right, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Good, good. Saw a couple uh, concerts over the weekend. Very good concerts. Nice. So that was that was excellent. Got in the front row for uh, the second night, so that was even better. Cool. Uh, see, who are you seeing this time? Are, are we fishing? So the, or the War on people? Drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah. So fun. I like the War on Drugs. Yes, it was quite good. The band, not the the actual thing. That that joke came up several times it. in my timeline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I assume that joke is made like. 500,000 times during every single War on Drugs concert by people mm-hmm. in attendance. So mm-hmm. I assume so. And by people that they're sharing with online. That's, yeah, I just assume so. <laughs> that too. Highlight of my weekend was the one of the worst Super Bowls ever. So, yeah, <laughs> you win. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, like, didn't really even watch a minute of it. Like, I, it was on at one point in the first half, and I was just not even paying any attention to it. I turned it off. Yeah. Didn't pay any attention to that, so it was aesthetically the worst Super Bowl I can conceive of. Uh, just I kind of almost hated everything about it. Like the teams weren't particularly good. They ran the ball just a ton for no good reason, unsuccessfully. Um, just tons of bad play and sacks. And then the refs decided to show up in the last two minutes, which is the worst time for the refs to show up. So oh, awful across the board. Should go down as one of the worst Super Bowls ever with the uh, Steelers Seahawks Super Bowl. Atrocious. Oh, I would have yeah. much rather been at two concerts. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely thinking I made the right choice on all that. So, And I also, yep. uh, Saturday afternoon, missed the Badgers losing to Rutgers, which that was a thing that apparently happened at home. Uh, yeah, I'm, I missed that too. Um, I'm, I'm told Rutgers isn't that bad, but still. Yeah, I mean, Michigan State lost to uh, to Northwestern at home, and Northwestern is legitimately bad. So, you know, it's... right. Good teams are going to lose to bad teams. Sometimes it's going to happen. And it will. But I didn't see a minute of that one either. So I don't know. (laughs) Now is my time for college basketball. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the time when everybody starts tuning into that, right? Like after the Super Bowl. And uh, we should be tuning into spring training. But that isn't going to happen for a while because the owners are continuing to be stupid. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, first, though, <laughs> you can become a patron by signing up with uh, us for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com uh, slash tailgate. You'll get question priority here and on this podcast, as well as reporting as eligible Packers podcast. Five bucks a month gets you some extra content. You'll also get the minor league podcast with Ryan and James Anderson from Rotowire. And you'll get Paul's reporting as eligible preview mini pods and he'll preview the game every week is it weird that i said my own name there because i was reading james copy a little bit yes a little a little bit okay <laughs> now i'm making it more weird by talking strange, about it's it okay all right so so anyway <laughs> as i mentioned before the uh owners did finally deign to come back with a an offer again over the weekend here and the results of it were pretty much emphatic and instant that the players were underwhelmed by MLB's latest offer and it really just included a lot of minute movements that uh on stuff that isn't really getting us that much closer they just it's like yeah. they they want to test the players resolve they want to see if they can break them it really doesn't seem like uh, 
there's much of a sense of urgency on ownership's part here. Uh, you look at like this idea that they have, and we talked about this in the past, that they were going to create this fund of money that was going to be bonuses for players who are zero to three. And so otherwise are getting paid very little, right? These are guys making basically the league minimum and that you'd create this bonus fund that would allow them to make a little bit more early on so that you wouldn't have things like Mike Trout being the most valuable player in baseball, pulling in $600,000, which yeah is just obscene and wrong. So they, they wanted to right. set this up and the players initially proposed a total of 105 million and the league countered at 10 million. <laughs> So you've only got, what is that, a 900% difference or something there? So you had a huge difference there. The players have dropped their ask down to $100 million, and the owners today increased from $10 million to $15 million. So, yeah, not yes. like we're making really any progress here. Though, I guess you could say no. that the idea that they're willing to do this at all is at least some progress, right? Like adding this in is going to be a benefit to the players long term. So it is, but I do think that number is pretty important um so it's nice to have the concept but a lot of what the owners have been wanting to do is take minimal action in some way that looks like large action um and uh, any amount of this bonus pool will serve to make a certain segment of the the pre-arb group um you know a little bit richer but it's still going to be a pittance compared to what they would otherwise be paying and you know if you spread out Fifteen million dollars across what? Let's be honest, is most of the league, right? Well, um, I think they were saying that it was going to be the top thirty players, top thirty. But that—that's that's the thing. It doesn't even cover most of the people that it's intended to help. It just helps a few stars, um, and not that much. It, even dividing this by thirty is, in baseball terms, not that much. So um, this can be a real benefit if it lands more on the player side. Uh, that's a lot of money to spread around to guys who aren't getting paid very much. Um, the owner's proposal is laughable. It, 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 <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's a like 10% of one free agent level guy's salary to spread between, I mean, we could say top 30, whatever, of the pre-R people, but to, to make happy, you know, half the league, it's, it's just silly. Uh, and the fact that they're this far apart and it made what are essentially no concessions to each other is not a great sign. Um, it, they they clearly don't want to be playing in the same pool as each other with this bonus pool money. Um, and uh, it's going to be hard to close that gap. I, I'm not sure where the owner's stomach is on where they can end up. And I don't think the play, I think the players see this as like, well, we, we don't care if we get 10 or 15 million extra dollars for, for this purpose. Um, make it worthwhile or don't do it. It's, it's like paying somebody a year end bonus of like $25. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't bother. Um, that's, that's almost insulting. Mm -hmm. You'd rather get nothing than like, like I, I once worked for a company that is now out of business and they had to give people bonuses based on a formula. And I won, I once got a bonus of $7 and 36 cents for the year that <laughs> were contractually obligated to pay. And I was just like, no, don't just, you can, you can just keep that. I'm, I'm not interested in that. I would rather not have this. Um, I would rather not have to answer a question about, did you get a bonus? What was it? From in the future, the embarrassment of doing so would not be worth the money I'm being paid. So that's what that is from 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 the player's perspective. Like, 15 million for this purpose is is trash. And uh, if if the owners don't move into something more realistic, there's no reason for the players to consider this as any kind of win at this point. 
So what's ultimately the end game here? Is this to just split the difference, go to 50 million and say, that's where we're going to be? Or are they going to demand, is ownership looking to get it much closer to their, to their dollar figure and players are looking to get it much closer to their dollar figure? I guess the only thing is that they did go up five. Um, and if they were really being jerks about it, um, the owners would have gone up like 100,000 or something like that, which is something that people do in these kinds of negotiations sometimes. And looking at it, maybe winding up in $50 million is um, is kind of what we're looking at here. And my, I'd probably wager on it being something like that. Um, but uh, it's, it's hard to tell because if they were going to get there, this seems like something where you could make that immediate, like, okay, when you're in hard bargaining, you can't just go um, all of a sudden, okay, let's just go 50 million. Cause you, you will get screwed if you do that. You have to approach it um, carefully from both sides, but given where this is, you know, you can do some sort of, Hey, off the record negotiations here. Like, Hey guys, are we, are we looking to middle this at some point? Can we move on to other things? Like you can kind of do that and get a read um, sometime. And, um, if they were gonna just end up at fifty million, I feel like they should be closer to it by now. <laughs> That's my only thing about it. Um, it's it's weird that they're they're making angry proposals and not realistic move the ball proposals on this on this front. So not sure. Um, they probably just need that anger breakthrough to actually have that happen. Um, that we haven't gotten yet. They're still being dicks to each other. Um, but but. Uh, Honestly, hard to say. It's a new idea, and I'm, it's hard to say from behind the scenes where they have, you know, where they have their targets as to where to land on this. Yeah, and it's kind of the same story over on the CBT side of things. And this is a big deal for the owners. Obviously, they love the CBT that they have in place now, and are in no hurry to move it up, even though the game's revenues have been continuing to, to grow, even even with uh, COVID, like. The, the game's revenues have grown. Like, obviously, they took a big hit by not having people in person in, uh, in, in 2020. But it was during 2020 that they, they inked this deal with ESPN for a, a huge yet still undisclosed sum of money to broadcast the extra round of playoff games that they don't have permanently in. They just had for that year. But they have this deal in place now to do this. And, like, we're looking at basically the ownership group they're they're miles apart on this one too so they've they've bumped it up to like 216 to 20 and they 220 in the last year of the deal so in 2026 it was going to go to 220 and now they're willing to go to 222 in the last year of the deal and the the players union is looking at 245 to 260 which is all things considered if you look at when the the competitive balance tax was put in place and then you look at the growth of league revenues to this point, it should be well higher than 245 yep. million to 260 million. And that is, it I'm should. assuming, Paul, the way this always works, right? It is. Um, and it, it, it's never easy. Like looking from the outside, you always look at this and are like, well, this should be easy. This should be math, for, but basically a formula to it. Like we can more or less tell what you have available. We more or less know what percentage of it's the players should be getting where caps should be where luxury taxes should be, but it does not work like that. And the owners uh, the thing to understand here is, well, in a, in a vacuum, we kind of have an idea of what's fair. Nobody cares about what's fair during these negotiations. Like that, that 
they have lawyers working for them. They're rich people. They care about getting the best deal. Um, and, and so that all goes out the window in terms of any any broader, you know, idealistic conception we might have of what people should be paid. And the way that we get to something fair is through this just crappy incremental, uh, oh, you know, back and forth over and over and over again, um, drawn out negotiation. Uh, by the way, negotiations don't have to go like that. Uh, often, when you are negotiating something, even something big and expensive, um, you will come to the table with more trust and be able to middle a price more quickly. That the pro- part of this problem is they have made the environment so toxic, um, and lawyers love toxic environments because you do have to go back and forth. And every time you rewrite a proposal, it's it's dozens and dozens of hours of rewriting that proposal and checking it over and making sure it's airtight. Um, but uh, it's it's not good for anybody, and it it makes it hard to actually reach a deal that is good for both sides. But yeah, it, there's nothing unusual about this. And um, if you're looking for the primary reason we're likely to lose games in this labor negotiation, it is because the lack of trust here is going to require um, smaller increments towards the middle on pretty much every important issue that they're facing here. And every time you do that, it takes time to go back, to write it up, to check it over, to get all the owners assent, to get the players assent. Um, and then to go back with like, you know, this pittance of oh, 5 million here and an extra like 2 million on, on this point. It, it, look, just look at this. You're, the players are apart on the, on the, the, the threshold by what, $25 million, $20 million. Like if they go back and forth at the same rate, they've been going back and forth. They'll have to exchange like 10 more versions of this just to get to, to a middle on that. That's, it's not good. Um, it'll take forever and be very expensive. So ownership is hoping that MLB or sorry, that the, the, the players association is going to jump quicker than them and will try to meet them in the middle faster and then they'll offer less mm-hmm. than what the concession the players just made was. And then we'll say, okay, well, we're still far apart. Why don't we have that? And it, yeah, this it really does come down to these sides just not wanting to, to get together. And I, I think Joe Sheehan made an excellent point on his appearance on Effectively Wild last Friday. I know you were just listening to that. And the one yeah. thing that kind of stood out to me that he pointed out was that who is in MLB ownership? And I don't know if you got to this part yet, uh, but he talks about the fact that it's changed, that it used to be that you would have sort of rich people who basically viewed the baseball team as their toy that they got to play with as a reward for being rich, that this was the thing that was going to make them a big wheel in their community that was going to be, you know, get their name in the papers and they were going to get to puff out their chest and maybe, you know, hoist a World Series trophy at some point. Like that was that was the reason for owning the teams and that during the Selig era, that one of the big things that happened was as the team valuations went through the roof, those type of owners became less and less common with some exceptions like the guys in L.A. and Cohen in uh, New York now who New York, yeah. are, are a little bit more inclined in that direction. But more, more so, it's become people that are looking at this as a way to get even more fabulously wealthy. And yeah, if you can win and make some you know, make some friends and influence along the way. That's great. But that doesn't seem to be the primary motivating factor for ownership. 
and that that is a notable change from the way that it has been. And it's why we're seeing a big change in yeah. how this is all approached now. It's probably Bud Selig's lasting legacy on the game from his commissionership um, in essentially really getting the most out of baseball's antitrust exemption. Uh, when you have those owners that do that are willing to push beyond everybody else because they actually do want to win and have the fame and have the trophy. Um, it, we, we always used to make fun of George Steinberg because he owned the Yankees, but he was one of those too. He would, he would throw money at his team to try and win and eventually did. Um, but uh, in the, the new, um, the new era of owners really is uh, a bunch of guys that get together that, that try to set these caps on what they can possibly lose um, and have uh, asset growth as their primary goal in owning a team, not going out and spending their own money or, you know, raising capital and spending money to buy better players and win a title. That's rare. It doesn't happen in most places. It used to happen in small markets too. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it, it, it essentially is now one big owner's union of um, let's make billions and that will be our trophy. We will have lots more money. And owning a team, I feel like, is also fun. Like, if I've seen the Ricketts at Cubs games a bunch. I don't really think I mean, they they went to their credit, won a title with the Cubs, which is not easy. Um, but uh, I do think they just like being in the stadium and walking around and being famous. And you can do that without with or without winning most of the time, as long as you're not a total asshole. People people bow down to power, even when they say they hate owners. Like, owners are still treated with a lot of respect by most people, not not people on the internet like us, but but most people. That is the case. Oh, and we have a question about that a little bit later. So we'll we'll loop back to that a little bit down the road. But I wanted to ask you one more thing before we sort of move off of this, because we could go down and I, I'll, I'll just mention some of the other issues here. They're talking about uh, that idea of trying to reward teams for bringing up players early by giving uh, by giving them extra draft picks should they decide to. Uh, have a guy on the roster from the beginning, like, you know, famously didn't happen with Chris Bryant in 2015, where right. had they done that now, they would have gotten two first round draft picks as a reward for having brought him up at a normal sane time. And you find whatever that this stuff doesn't move needles a whole ton. None of that is actually like causing uh, the major issues in the game. That's it's a side problem and it is bad. It's especially bad PR for the league, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, but there's just a bunch of stuff like this where uh, you're talking about that. But there were two substantial things that MLB has now conceded. And that is, at least from a public relations standpoint and things fans care about, I think these two things do move the needle somewhat, though less so for the players, because I think the players knew that this was all coming all the time anyway. And that is they are finally willing to give up draft pick compensation for uh, signing free agents. That is going to be going away. Right. That was one of the things Manfred announced in this last thing was that no longer will there be any mechanism to hold down player salaries by tying their signing to the loss of a draft pick or the gaining, you know, when, when a team so loses a player like that, the gaining of a draft pick. That stuff had been yeah. kind of taken out of things. The, the, the qualifying offer process had made that much less important to the game already. And now they're just willing to completely do away with it. So that is at least something that they're willing to do there. Yep, that's a good. That is, that's true, and that is a good one, and it's substantial. Like that definitely had a a severe impact on 
uh, players' free agent value for sure. It 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 did, and p- teams did not like that. Not huge, but but certainly significant. Well, and it was it was a specific class of player, right? Like we're talking about a specific yeah, group was. of players at this point because the guys who were your Carlos Correas, it, it doesn't affect them at all. They were gonna go. They were gonna be offered a qualifying offer. It doesn't really change. Maybe it changes the the final amount that they get by a few million, but ultimately that's still a competitive market. So teams are going to pay what they have to pay, kind of, even if it does mean losing a draft pick somewhere in there. Uh, the bigger thing, I think, was it was more of the middle market guys, and the Brewers took advantage of this in some cases. Yeah. They were able to sign some guys. Uh, I believe Lorenzo Cain was in this situation. They were able to get a deal on uh, done uh, with Yasmani Grandal because of his qualifying offer that you know, allowed them to sign him That's to right. that one-year yep. deal. They were able to take advantage of this a little bit. So, And the thing was, it wasn't like teams were getting first-round draft picks anymore for this stuff. It was uh, you were getting like a pick after the first round. It, it was not the same as it used to be. Uh, that had changed quite a bit. Yeah. But the bigger change that owners have conceded to here is that there's going to be a universal DH. And this is one of those chorus of angel singing moments. Not necessarily. I know there are people who love the, the DH and there are people who hate the DH and whatever. I'm not even making a judgment call on that. But I will say this was something that both sides agreed on. And ownership yeah. was demanding literally for the last two years yep. that the players give something up for something that they already agreed they wanted to. And the fact that they gave up right. that canard, at least, is some sort of positive <laughs> progress, right? It, it, yes, and I'm guessing that some lawyer said, you're not getting a concession for this. Um, stop being stupid about it. Uh, that's probably what happened. But yeah, it, it, it's been ridiculous that um, because the players wanted it, the owners decided that they would pretend not to want it for, uh, I mean, two years publicly, but probably longer than that, honestly. Um, it's been uh, bandied about since I think like the late 80s as to um, the players would like a another DH for the extra roster spots and to protect aging people in baseball. And it, essentially, since that's happened and was logicked out, ownership has been like, OK, well, that's a negotiating point that we'll have. But obviously they want it, too, because they don't they, they like run scoring and uh, they like the offensive environments and the DH helps a lot with that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's ridiculous, and I'm, fi- I'm glad they finally gave it up. At least some some common sense prevailed on them there. Uh, so yeah, we got the DH. Everybody wanted the DH except for certain certain fans, and uh, that's uh, that's what we got now. So um, yay, offense. Well, and I think the other thing too is, and it's not all that common though. We have one big shining example of this with Jimmy Nelson. There were pitchers who were getting seriously mm-hmm. hurt on occasion. Yeah batting or running the bases, you know, with Jimmy Nelson, it was running the bases, sliding back into first. If only it slid yep. onto his other shoulder, not his, his right. Yep. And it'd be Pitching a completely shoulder. different world. But that is a, on one hand, yes, it, it is a small factor. On the other hand, if you're handing out pitching contracts that are these huge, huge dollar amounts and taking on that risk of handing out a massive amount to people who already do something that is really dangerous for their long-term health and difficult to guarantee health, you don't want to add extra layers of risk when you can easily avoid it, like adding the DH allows them to avoid it, right? Yeah. 
I, I mean, I, I get the traditional argument. You should be able to field your position and bad, but uh, it, it's it's always made sense with the pitcher. Like pitching is such a distinct skill from the rest of baseball um, that requires its own level of dedication and, and continued practice that you, you kind of can't do two things at once at a professional level and be good at both of them. At least not, I mean, yes, there's Shoya Tani. It Once in a blue moon, it's going to happen. But for the most part, it's, it's not really possible. And like, yeah, bunting, whatever, strategy, but we, we really don't pay to see those guys hit. Like, it's fun when a pitcher cracks a homer every once in a while, but it is risk to them. It's, and like, it's novelty. Like, when that happens, it's crazy because it doesn't happen very often. It's much better to see a game actually continue to be played and not run into those automatic outs. And, um, I, I like, I don't know. I've come around to the pro DH side. I don't care that much, but, uh, I, I'm sick of my pitchers getting hurt too. Um, not, uh, Jimmy Nelson was different than Giovanni Gallardo, who was just fielding a ball and running into Reed Johnson. But like, I'm sick of seeing my pitchers hurt, not pitching. I guess, <laughs> mm-hmm. be it defending or hitting, it, it annoys me. Yeah, I mean, it's already such a difficult thing to do that adding in any extra layer of risk on top of it. And I think for me, the biggest argument has been for a long time that pitchers aren't selected for this in any way, shape, or form. It's not like with catchers where yes the defensive component is really important but if you look at the gulf between what hitters what kind of hitters catchers are and what kind of hitters pitchers are it's night and day there's there's no comparison pitchers are not selected for they're not (laughs) trained in any way to to really hit anymore uh teams have gone pretty far away from having their guys even take bp because they just don't want to add that level of risk to the guys that are already, you know, in a pretty precarious position health wise, just doing their job. So mm-hmm. like yep. the fact that teams don't pay any attention to it, they're not planning around it. They're not building around it. Nobody's giving Zach Grinky more money because he can hit uh, than you know, Zach Grinky would get if he couldn't hit at all. Like that's, that's not really a factor. Nobody's paying any attention to that. So it ultimately, nope. it just like, it just is a non-factor and it needs to it needs to just go away. And yeah, people have, have made the point, well, why don't we just, you know, do why shouldn't we just DH then catchers too and have a, a DH for catchers? Well, if a hundred years down the road, you know, God willing, we're all still around and the game is still being played, and if catchers have gotten to the point where they are not offensive players at all and nobody's paying any attention to what their offense is, then sure. But that hasn't happened yet. So we can cross that bridge, nope. you know, decades or centuries from now when we get there. All right. So um, before we move on and, and finally get out of this discussion, and we've we've got some more DH talk coming up later, some specific questions about that. But we did have a question from uh, Michael Hank on Twitter, and he wants a survival guide for how to talk to fans who that are pro owner and won't budge. Um, and he said old people <laughs> in this. So uh, how, how do you have these conversations? I have some things I have been actually using in casual conversations I've had with coworkers about this stuff. So I'm interested to hear what you yeah. have to say first though, Paul. So I, I think the first thing I always do is I do try and move my language over to a very capitalistic language um, and, and frame this as, a battle in capitalism itself because um 
the entire basis of capitalism is based around rewarding people for taking risks, um, making some sacrifices, putting their own money, labor, resources into an idea, um, getting it to take off, and chasing and making profit. Um, that is the that's the deal that is made in capitalism. That you are rewarded for taking a risk, coming up with an innovation, actually getting it into a sellable, scalable um, item or service. And on the owner's side in baseball, there's nothing like that that, that occurs. Uh, there used to be 100 mm -hmm. years ago, 50, maybe even less than that. But th that is simply not the case anymore. And a lot of that is because of a lot of anti-capitalistic uh, laws and policies that apply to baseball at this time. So um, uh, baseball owners are pretty much shielded from risk not entirely like we could have a giant sports crash that might happen at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, but uh, baseball owners generally have subsidized stadiums. They have a bunch of real estate and stadiums and development that's subsidized by the governments, often paid for in their entirety through by taxes. Um, there's no risk there. Um, the asset class of Major League Baseball teams, because they are restricted, there's not that many of them, can, they do tend to appreciate uh, without much of a ceiling. A lot of that is based on the fact that the infrastructure is all subsidized. Don't put money into it. Um, and there are the various caps that exist on everything. But um, even if your operating budget gets out of control, even if you're a bad businessman, even if you are not good at the penny-pinching ways of a lot of businessmen, um, the asset will still generally grow faster than you can spend money and piss it away, and you'll still make money. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Uh, there was some there's some talk going around today about how uh, talk Manfred said uh, that baseball teams were not a good um, investment and that they had appreciated slower than the S&P 500, uh, which is not true. They have not uh, done that. But aside from that, the S&P 500, the, the stocks that make up the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Index or anything else you want to go after in the stock market, they don't come risk free. The stock market goes down um, often a lot with some regularity and, and baseball uh, just doesn't, it tends to go forward. So even, even if you want to make that point uh, it's been less risky. And, and aside from all of that, on top of everything else, baseball has its antitrust exemption. Um, if you are a conservative leaning person, if you don't like unions, if you're a business owner who has to deal with the unionized workforce, that can be very frustrating. Um, I understand that. And um, unions are to some extent anti-capitalist, uh, Part of the idea of the libertarian ethos is that workers should compete just like businesses should compete. Uh, and if you want to make that case, that's fine. But in baseball, uh, I mean, I would argue that in a lot of life, that's not true, that businesses are not competing as they should. Um, but in baseball, it's certainly the case that that ownership is not competing as it should. They are, in fact, protected from competition via their antitrust exemption, and they actively collude together. The owners have a union. So if you are an anti-union person, whatever, fine, be an anti-union person, but just note that the ownership side in baseball is in an, is, is in a union that is as codified and as artificially created as anything created by the National Labor Relations Board. And you really are just arguing for the billionaires union against the hundred thousandaires slash a couple millionaires union. That's all you're doing. So um the baseball union is up against a much tougher opponent than a lot of other unions are by virtue of the fact that they're up against a big conglomeration of affiliated billionaires that, that are working against them. 
uh, you're not just working on like some wonderkind billionaire who invested all of his time and money to build up a business from scratch and now has a bunch of employees that he would like to not pay as much as they would like to be paid. That's that happens a lot. This is a bunch of people who either inherited their teams um, or bought them pre-made, um, you know, as an asset class who didn't build them up from scratch or anything like that. Um, and uh, are now just trying to suppress wages as much as possible to make their assets um, even more valuable than it previously was. Uh, this really is about people splitting up a bunch of free money that's protected by the U.S. government and other state governments that have put a lot of capital into it. Um, and if you side with the people who are not actually contributing the labor to it, you're, you're, do you're doing it wrong. You have picked the incorrect side. So you alluded to a couple of points there that I want to pull out and make even more explicit. And the first was when you very carefully expressed this as being a fight between the billionaires and the hundred thousandaires with a few millionaires sprinkled in. And that has been an important point. Uh, Travis Sawchick wrote about that and Joe Sheehan mentioned it. On People are, are mentioning this more and more that baseball players don't make as much money as you think they do. This is a sort of a general truth. If you look at the average salary, yes, it's like three or four million dollars a year. But that does not reflect anything close to what the median is, which is much closer to the minimum, because in any given year, yeah. uh, more than half, half to uh, slightly more than half of the workforce is still pre-arbitration and less than what it was is like 80 percent never see a free agent dollar. They never get a free agent contract. Yeah. And. That is the vast majority of players never get to that point. And these are the, the players that the sport is ever increasingly relying on to be the backbone of uh, their clubs because owners have been increasingly hesitant to spend money on, especially the middle class of free agents. Yes, they're happy to spend on superstars because those are the marquee names that uh, can drive value and, and drive attendance and drive just interest in their teams but they mm -hmm. the the four mil or the four year 60 million dollar contract that's almost vanished from baseball at this point like that is just about gone yep that middle class of free agency uh is just about gone and so it is important to distinguish that most players are not making that much money and that a big part of this, we, we skipped over it, but one of the things that's being argued about is the minimum salary in the league. And that has not kept up with the rate of growth in the sport at all either. They, that has stagnated well below. And if you look at what is it in the NBA, isn't it almost $2 million? And I, I know they're different uh, yeah, sports and so. different roster sizes and everything, but baseball with its revenues can certainly afford to do a lot better by it's it's least expensive players. It's yeah, it's least valuable players than what is currently about you know, less than six hundred thousand dollars in a year, and that comes with a lot of expenses too. You you have to remember that being a baseball player and having those sorts of expenses, you're probably going to have being paying rent or mortgages on multiple places because you have to split your time between you know some warm weather place in the off season and the the major league city you happen to live in or you've been moved around so much that you don't even really like lay down roots anywhere because you've been traded or released or whatever it's not a a cheap lifestyle that those guys are going to lead and i'm not trying to, to drum yeah. up sympathy it's just pointing out the realities like the, 
they're not sitting on nearly as much money as people I think generally think they are. That medium salary that's kind of gone. Um, sometimes I feel like it's hard to drum up sympathy specifically for those guys. Uh, but do keep in mind that is related to the salary suppression that exists in the control period for everybody, because what's replacing those contracts is guys still under team control who are having their salaries artificially depressed. That has the effect of continuing to artificially depress their salaries, even once they are into the free agent portion of their careers by competing with people two or three years younger who are still having their salaries suppressed. You'd rather have somebody similarly skilled in that um, area of their career than somebody who's now in the free agent market. And so um, it's we, we talk about a lot how it's kind of the the many tiered uh, faux MLB salary cap where there's the luxury tax and there's team control. Um, but that team control even extends further than you might think because it continues to press down on everybody but stars, uh, e- even two or three or four years after they enter free agency, at which point you leave your prime. And uh, so there is a lot of suppression that goes on throughout a player's uh, prime into their slight decline slight phase just because that exists. Well, and it also pushes players to make deals that they wouldn't otherwise make early. And we have one on uh, on the Brewers, and we, we have to acknowledge and point this out, that Freddie Peralta signed Freddie a deal Peralta, yeah. to make sure that he was going to be guaranteed uh, a certain amount of money, that he was going to walk out of his MLB career with, you know, basically a life's worth of money. And I think it, the, the guaranteed deal paid him something in the neighborhood of $25 million. I'm not looking at it right now, but it, it was somewhere in that neighborhood. And that was because he was still a reasonable ways away from being able to guarantee that money. And especially with pitchers, you never know when that elbow or shoulder might give out and you just become less of the pitcher that you that you um, were at one point. And so reaching for that money is something that a lot of players do. And it especially happens with players coming from uh, from not the United States. You see this a lot. It The Braves case was probably the worst example of this where both Abilas and uh and Ronald Acuña Jr signed deals that were really below what the market would bear for them especially Ozzy Abilas his deal his his agent probably should not be an agent for having pushed Correct, that deal yes. like that really was grossly irresponsible to have done that deal but he did that, and the reason that that was done and the reason that that at all even made sort of sense to do was because he was still so far away from making money because the owners had leverage over that. So anyway, mm-hmm. just one other thing I wanted to say before we moved on. You did mention it, but I want to point out, and this is really hammer this one, because so often the people that take the owner's side tend to be more conservative. And uh, I think that one thing I've had a lot of success with is pointing out repeatedly that owners are the ones who hold cities and counties and states hostage for places to play and to get sweetheart deals. And they put that bill on the taxpayers. Players aren't doing this. Players, there's there's not a corollary to this for players. They are not the ones demanding that taxpayers pay them a bunch of money for their stadiums. And so it just that point, I think really does kind of hit home and drive in with some people that no, these people really aren't, 
they're they're not they're demanding subsidies from the government and getting them and doing it at you know yeah. basically gunpoint by saying if you don't give me this I'm going to move your team. Correct. And that's pretty sleazy yes, and it, I think you can make a lot of headway with people by hammering that point that ownership groups do this all the time. Yeah. And Michael, if you need to drive it home with uh, any extremely radical people, uh, just the owners are the bad guys in the Ayn Rand novel. They're not the good guys. The good guys are the people like inventing fake steel and and uh, you know ways to create energy from static electricity. They're not the guys who get federally subsidized and state subsidized sports teams. Those are the bad guys. So uh, if you need to put it in language to really drive that home, uh, that one sometimes will get the job done. All right. Well, as James would say, I think that's enough labor talk for the week. Um, so <laughs> let's actually, you know what? I, I spoke too soon because actually Tim Brown, our yeah, first question here, of course, are. yeah, is about this, though it's not exactly what we've been talking about. Um, so Tim Brown asks, I know that it's unlikely because of turnover, but how would the ML, MILB players get a union? So the minor league players get a union. I saw Eugene Friedman explaining why the MLBPA can't really worry about them. And that was in response to me, actually. I'm the one that brought that up. So kudos it to was. me. Yes, you were. So <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, yes, Paul, you want to do the, the quick discourse on why this is like much more fraught than people realize? Yeah, the short version is it's really hard. So first thing is that the Major League Baseball Players Association can't really include them, at least not very easily. It would be very, very difficult to do so. Um, and they would essentially have to arrange the same kind of uh, of union vote or card check um, that they had to do to, to organize in the first place to incorporate those uh, we'll get to why in a second, but new members into their own union. Uh, aside from that, the Major League Baseball Players Association is not necessarily aligned with the minor league baseball players. Um, and part, part of your strength as a union is all being on the same page about uh, what your interests are. And they are often opposed to each other. Um, they're not necessarily on the same team in a lot of ways um, and the minors aren't you know competition for the majors for the most part uh, but there are set resources in affiliated baseball and professional baseball and uh, they're not necessarily uh, aligned on who should get them all the time so but aside from that just the, the difficulty involved in organizing for the minors is is really really tough um, First of all, when you do organize, you organize um, a certain at a certain level. Like you'll often see in uh, like manufacturing, a factory organize. Um, in some other um, industries, you'll see like in a region unionized. Um, and if you think about what is unionized in Major League Baseball, it's all of the Major League players. Um, organizing all of the minor league players is really hard. Now, first of all, I think you could argue that you would maybe you could maybe just do like the triple A players or just the double A players. That is hard already um, because of turnover, as Tim mentioned in his question. Uh, you need the bargaining units to be consistent where you can lobby everybody on all of the teams, which are not all in the same locker room and are spread out all over the place um, to get on board with the union and vote and, um, you know, uh, agree to have a certain chunk of their pay taken away to keep the union running and things like that. Not easy, especially when people are shuttling in and out. Um, and as Eugene pointed out, 
any attempt at this would be met with resistance from the ownership, uh, which is very good at, at stopping these, at tying them up in litigation. And if you start organizing uh, right now in um, February of 2022, and you can't do a vote until February of 2024, you will have had like 60% turnover in any given level of minor league baseball, probably more than that. That was off the top of my head, um, which invalidates it because your unit, your, your organ, your people have all changed and you have to start from scratch again. Um, that goes for every single level. You could try and do the whole shebang, I suppose, maybe. Um, but that's a lot of organizing. There are a lot of minor league baseball teams across the entire affiliated set. And you need resources and people to go out and do that to all of these different teams. It's really a Herculean effort. Um, and it is probably impossible at the minor league level. Well, and I think the big thing that Eugene pointed out, and I retweeted that thread uh, right away when he started talking about it, is that they legally are forced to represent the MLBPA legally represents anybody on the 40 man rosters. They are not allowed to represent anybody else. They have a legal binding no. obligation to represent just their members, not anybody outside of their membership. Yeah, they're certified by the National Labor Relations Board to um, argue on behalf of their members. They just can't add people in willy nilly. That's they would have to uh, go through the process to add new people, and that is its own organizing effort. And uh, so that's that basically cannot take place. Yeah, it would be like them just deciding to argue on behalf of us. You know, we have mm -hmm. no affiliation with the Major League Baseball Players Association. They're not allowed to just say we're going to argue for Ryan and Paul, too. Um, and, uh, you know, that there's good reason for that. But that is, that is fundamentally why they can't. Yeah. And the reason that this all came up is a tweet from Evan Drellick from it looks like Friday night here. And <laughs> this is an insane quote. Um, and so this came from. Uh, somebody arguing on behalf of MLB here. Uh, it is the players that obtain the greater benefit from training opportunities that they are afforded than the clubs who actually just incurred the cost of having to provide that training. This was uh, given as a justification for why ML uh, minor league players should continue to be unpaid in spring training. <laughs> yeah, it's mind melting. It's, it's insulting of the intelligence just on a level that you just it's hard to even comprehend. It, it's hard to even comment on something like that. I mean, they're part of it. They're part of the development system for Major League Baseball, and Major League Baseball teams control their rights. Like this, <laughs> it's not like a bunch of like wannabe free agents showed up to get instruction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a, a couple did, but but no, not really. For the most part, it, it it's ridiculous. It is the total. Um, uh, for exposure argument that is made mm -hmm. fun of on the internet so much. Uh, it is the unpaid intern um, reasoning, and it just it applies even less to professional sports than it does in those areas of life. Well, and just remember, MLB is relying ever more on that exact group of workers to undermine the union. They're relying on that group continuing to churn out more and more and more talent to create more and more competition for the last end roster spots, which will in turn allow them to not have to pay people past those first three years that they can just, mm -hmm. because they know that there's a guy coming up 
from AAA who is going to be just as good as the guy that uh, is, you know, now arbitration eligible. And that will allow them to say, we don't need you anymore. You can go elsewhere and just let them go. And they're counting on that pipeline to keep this whole thing rolling. And it's working. And so to then turn around and say that uh, it's all to the benefit of those players is just absurd on its face. So, Aside from all the other stupid points about that, um, minor league games actually do bring in a lot of gate and television revenue um, that the owners enjoy all of. And they couldn't actually put them on without those players showing up. So um, if you... Uh, you can't argue that those players are providing zero benefits when you are getting a bunch of money by selling the rights to have people look at their labor. That is like, it just happens and the owners make a ton of money off of it. It's completely ridiculous. Yep. All right. So let's get into less labory things. Uh, Mark, uh-huh. uh, Mark Pod Scarby asks a new report came out today detailing that David Stern's contract with the Brewers uh, is as follows. Uh, basically his deal runs through 2023. So the next two seasons, it would be through the end of the 2023 season. He does have an opt out that provides should the Brewers reach the uh, world series this year. So win the NL pennant, and presumably then also if they win it or win the World Series too. So they, they have to make it to the World Series. And if they do that, David Stearns is released from his contract a year early. So he would then be eligible to go wherever, cough, cough the Mets, at the end of the 2022 season. <laughs> Any thoughts? It's a weird contract. If it's, first of all, assuming it's true, um, I, I, I kind of like it. Um, it's if you accomplish your baseball goal, then you can do it. It's almost like a, a baseball winning stock option. So like, mm-hmm. I'm kind of pro stuff being being formatted like that. Like, uh, it, it's not a, a a bonus like a if you drove this much money thing. It's like if you actually win, then you can do whatever you want. So I'm pro that. That's fine. Um, I would be surprised, a little bit surprised if they actually wrote that out, but also kind of impressed. So <laughs> I don't know that I have more thoughts than that. Like, yeah, if if David Stearns manages to shepherd the team to a World Series appearance, I'm fine with him doing whatever he wants. And uh, I'm kind of good with that contract structure um, with my sports teams, generally speaking, because if you get them to the championship, um, that's good enough for me. And you can you should go cash in on your success then. I'm fine with that. Or at least be then eligible to get a new contract a little bit earlier. Yeah. I, I think this should be totally. something that's in. You're rewarded. Yeah. All managers, coaches, GMs, they should all have stuff like this built in where if you get to the mountaintop, you get to void your contract and then you are sitting in the power position to be able to demand you know, a lot more from that owner who should have to pay it. You know, like that's the way it should work. Yeah. So I'm I'm all for that. And it in a world where so many things are not incentivizing winning this perfectly incentivizes winning this puts all of that incentive on winning and that's where it should be sports should exist so that people win (laughs) and not make massive profits that should be the reward you get for winning is making a profit not you get the profit and then if you win that's great that's that is not the way all of this should work and that is the way that this is all working now so Let's not have that be the case. All right. Um, 
Oh, here's a fun one. PJ Wessels asks, MLB decides to follow the NFL and have a halftime show type of performance at some point during the World Series. What game does it happen before, during, after? Could it fall on an off day and be longer than the Super Bowl show? I think I think you go after game one. Um, any other, like, you can't try to tie it to what will be the most exciting game um, because you don't know what that'll be. You don't know if it's going to go seven. Um, you can't do that. And so I think you cash in on the first game. You, you play you play game one, you set the table, um, you have everybody tune in for that, get invested in it, and then you, you can tie a post-game concert to it that you can have people who are at the game be at the concert and broadcast it. And I think that would work out actually pretty well. Like it, it's, it's not comparable to the Super Bowl. Your biggest problem here is that like a seven game series, especially in baseball is not going to be, nothing's the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is its own thing. Um, so it's not going to be as big and it's not going to be something everybody tunes into, but it's not a terrible idea. If you want to, they could stand to make their, their postseason a little more festive, I think, and especially the World Series, which often does get kind of framed in traditional baseball as the the old the old hundred year old thing we've been playing forever and blah blah blah. It'd be nice if it was a little bit more of a party. So kind of on board, but game one is the answer. So actually I think the answer to this is something that they've already been doing for quite a while and we're just not paying attention to it like we pay attention to the Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> And that's the pregame concert at the All-Star Game, because the All-Star Game is actually more of a comparable for the Super Bowl in baseball because it's one game. It involves much more star power than your average World Series will, because you're guaranteed to get pretty much most of the biggest players in the game will be there. You know, the, the stars will be there and it's a one game event and it. It comes at a time when there isn't really anything else in the calendar. It's not competing against anything else like the Super Bowl or sorry, like the World Series is often competing against the the fall football schedule. So that has been increasingly a problem for getting good World Series ratings. And MLB has to, I guess, their credit in this case, been trying to push this for a while. They've been doing these concerts before the All-Star game to to make it a bigger deal. I think the one thing I would say, if you truly want to make this that big a deal, one, you're going to have to up your game in terms of who you're getting for this. They're going to need to be younger and more relevant and not second and third tier acts. And you're going to actually need to spend some money to get the biggest acts that are out there. And you're going to need to put it inside the game, which in the all-star game is not a problem at all. Mm -hmm. You couldn't stop a World Series game to have a, a big 40 minute concert the way that you stop, you know, the <laughs> Super Bowl to have because halftime's already a thing in football. And they yes, they extended out to an extra length of time for this. You couldn't do that in the World Series because you're playing a competitive game. But in the Ulster game, who cares? It's not like some starter is going to have to sit there for 40 minutes and wait because you're just going to bring in another new pitcher anyway. So it, none of that really matters. Yep. You can you can stop the game for 40 minutes and do a big concert in the middle of the thing. And have it be a, a bigger deal like that. And I think they've been trying to make the All-Star Game a bigger deal for a long time. The red carpet crap, I, <laughs> which I'm sure, you know what, <laughs> I'm sure that appeals to a lot of people. That I, I shouldn't say it like that, but like that sort of thing, they've been trying to push that and make that more of a thing. And really, 
I think they they need to go more with that, that the All-Star Game is sort of their showcase event and trying to figure out ways to make it an even bigger deal because it is the best All-Star Game by quite a bit. Like, did you watch the Pro Bowl, Paul? Did you tune into that? Uh, No. No. Do you ever tune into the Pro Bowl? Uh, every, Every now and then, but not really, no. Okay. I don't pay any attention to it at all. Because it's a scrimmage, it's right? They should not play the Pro Bowl. Yes. Yeah, because what was it that Matub was saying? It's, it's like what, you shouldn't you shouldn't play a pretend football game. You can't play right. You can't do it. It doesn't work. Right, it's because football. it's basically what die. a skelly drill? Like it's not it's not real. It's not yeah. So don't do that. It it's just absolutely ridiculous. But baseball, you can actually have the best pitchers and the best hitters really going all out to to get each other and you know, maybe people are playing a little more cautious in the field, but that doesn't that doesn't really detract from the quality of the game in any noticeable way if, if guys are being a little more cautious or whatever. Like that that is all very fine. Mm-hmm. So my my thing here would be to push this on the all-star game and make it a bigger part of the all-star game. And to do that, you're gonna have to get bigger acts. And you're also going to have to get acts that are more relevant <laughs> to <laughs> to People yeah. that would care about things like a Super Bowl halftime show. If you want that to be a drawing card and you want it to be part of the festivities, um, you know, I don't know. Like, who have they gotten for these concerts? Yep. We could go look it up, but like, it's going to need to be better. I have no idea. I don't well, it, it definitely wasn't yep. the, the conglomeration of stars they had last night. That's for sure. So definitely not. All right. Moving on to the next question, then. Um, Adam Post, what is your favorite non-Brewers ballpark? You can go minors, majors, historical, whatever. What is your favorite non-Brewers ballpark? I think mine is actually Target Field. Um, it It's great. It's not even that far away. It has great sight lines. Um, Twins games are pretty fun to go to. It's very connected to it, to downtown. So um, I think that was my, mo- my most pleasant game experience uh, outside of the hometown parks. Um, uh I've been to quite a few minor league games. Um, most of those are fine, but haven't blown me away. Spring training is actually really, I, I, I do like, I like watching in Maryvale, but that's probably also because it's like, you're always on vacation when you're doing that and it's hot and it's nice. And so, yeah, but I, I'd go target for the the majors um, yeah, by, by kind of a wide amount. I have not been to Pittsburgh, by the way, which I also hear is great. So, um, but uh have that's, you, what, that's what I'd pick. Yeah, I uh, for me, it's either PNC in Pittsburgh or it's whatever they're current calling the park in San Francisco. Like whatever that park is, <laughs> that would be the pick. And I don't know what the current name of it is. It seems to change. Oracle, probably. I don't. I, I don't either. Yeah, yes, so, that sounds right. Yeah, to me, it'll always be Pac Bell. <laughs> yep. All right. So anyway, yeah, those the stadiums are just um, gorgeous. They're just very beautiful places to be, and it's hard to just argue otherwise with with that. So, All right, Jay Google asks, Kira is going back to work with his old coach and going back to toning down his leg kick. Any thoughts? (laughs) Um, It's nice they're trying something different, but I won't believe. uh, There's no way to evaluate any given coaching philosophy ways to fix him etc in advance um uh, he's quite broken it's good they're trying something i don't know if the old guy's going to be able to to rebuild it but uh uh, i will not have any reaction to this until we actually see some results from it 
So th- that's all I got. Uh, I don't know how to, if I knew how to fix Keston Hira, I would like, I know how to fix Christian Yelich, but I don't know how to fix Keston Hira. <laughs> so, um, in, 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 until I see results on this, uh, skeptical, but hey, at least, at least they're not just throwing the same old stuff at him. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more concerned about the bat path and I know that the leg kick can affect that, like how a guy's setting up and what they're doing as they're getting into their swing can affect the bat path, but I'm suspecting there's going to need to be more to it than just that to get him to have more of a flexible bat path because it just seemed like such a grooved swing right now that I, I don't think that's going to be sufficient, but hell, maybe I'm wrong and I'm definitely no expert on hitting mechanics, so... Uh, we will have to wait and see, but I'm I'm going to maintain my uh, my stance that it's going to be really hard for him to get to the point he needs to get to now that he's no longer going to be playing second base because the bar for offense at any other position he's going to play now is going to be higher. OK, um, moving on. Ted Johnson asks, in honor of Valentine's Day, who is your Brewers man crush? I'll take this one first. My wife assures me that J.J. Hardy is still good looking. So, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> so we'll, we'll stick with that answer. He is for my time as a Brewers fan, he seems to be the most heartthrobby, uh, brewer of that, of this era of you know, going back 20 years, basically at this point. So not that I wasn't a brewer fan before, but like as an adult brewer fan. Yeah. So JJ Hardy. <laughs> You, you did take the lady's favorite there, so yeah. I mean, I'm. Um, I mean, that's why I went be, first. I wanted to make sure I grabbed the uh, the number one overall draft pick. There you go. Ricky Weeks or Paul Molitor, either okay. one. Sure. Yeah, you like those second basemen, <laughs> like the 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 compact second baseman. All right. I think of Paul Molitor mostly as a third baseman, but uh, I suppose but sure he was more of a third baseman, wasn't he? Because Gantner was at second. I to Gantner me, was second baseman. Yeah. You are an old Paul, and I am a young. Uh, and to me, Paul Molitor's a DH because I don't really remember before yeah, that I, point. So he got hurt a lot playing third, so that yeah. checks out. Um, but he was actually a pretty he was a fun to watch third baseman. There was a lot of diving. Yeah, there was a lot of diving, and he was the one that Bill James singled out for the willing to like go crashing into walls, and he would make the point. Paul yeah. Molitor would be a much better player if he stopped crashing into so many walls because he'd be on the field a lot more. Mm-hmm. So that was a Correct. famous Bill James abstract point from some year in the early 80s that I, I can't <laughs> exactly put my finger on. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of DH, the DH situation, the NLDH is coming. And so we got a bunch of questions about that. We'll kind of roll through these pretty quick because they're somewhat related to each other. Um, who is the current best option on the team at DH? Brian Polkowski is asking this one. It's So uh, right now, as currently constituted, the Brewer DH is going to be a place where they stick lots of people to rest them um, for regular rest and things like that. So like... A dose of Yelich, and I have too many screens open. I'm trying to see my other one right now. Um, but uh, I, I don't think there's really a good traditional one on the team right now. It, I think it would literally just be a cycle guys through. I get Rowdy, maybe, but uh, I like Rowdy first. So, I mean, he'll play some of it. Um, but that, that, I don't know, that's kind of it for me. Um, Rowdy plus outfielders plus occasional just get guys rest and at bats without taxing them for on the team. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that. I think Kira, if he is able to make a major rebound and get you know back to being a well above average offensive player, him seeing a lot of time at DH would certainly make sense. That would be perfectly fine. Um, in the free agent market. If they wanted to get Vogelbach back, that's fun. He's not that great, but okay. Um, but uh, they, they should go after Schwarber. It would just be so fun and a good fit. That would be a good one. But um, one of these is under the radar, right? I got to say for that. Um, but there, there's some other guys that they could go get to that, uh, like, that I think would be halfway decent options um, and they're getting sort of up there in age. So. Um, and and you, Schwarber's like the the big prototypical guy. Vogelbach same, but like, um, if you wanted to get like, uh, eh, Jason Kipnis maybe just for a platoon who can he was second baseman who now sucks at defense, eh, maybe. Um, but I I, I I have an under the radar that I'll save. But just go get the tubby guys. Like that's all I want. <laughs> like get the guys who. Yeah. No, I understand. Um. I think if you're going to go for a free agent, you're going to want that person to have, even if you're planning to primarily play them as a DH, I think you're still going to want them to have positional value outside of the designated hitter spot so yeah. you can rotate through. So like Schwarber fits that perfectly. Uh, Anthony Rizzo would fit that perfectly too, though I think he would primarily then play first base and that would push Rowdy to being a more common DH in that position. Yeah. So I think you would, you would see that more often from that perspective, but um, yeah, if you're, if you're going to spend money, I hesitate to say no, absolutely to the Nelson Cruz idea because he is such a good hitter. He is so good he is. that you'd sort of make an exception and you'd say, okay, well we'll tie up our DH spot for this year for him. It's not like you have to make a three, four year commitment to him. You're, you're going to be signing him to a one year deal. Yeah. So if, you, if that is what you want to do and you think he could really be a, a big force in the middle of the lineup for you for another year, then great. Have at it. I'm, I'm not going to get mad about that, certainly. But I, I do tend more to think that if you're going to spend money on this, you want it to be somebody like Schwarber who can position elsewhere as well. I think Jorge Soler maybe would be the most DHE sort of guy because you really don't want him much in the outfield, <laughs> though he could still take a glove and True. go out there. Like he he's not like Nelson Cruz where you really don't you, you don't want him in the field because he's probably gonna break something. So some of the other guys I looked at were still more like defensively capable but getting up there. Like like signing Andrew McCutcheon would be fun and you could use the DH to cycle outfielders through and get the most out of him. But he's not, you know, I think he could actually still play a decent outfield. So not really pertinent to the question. Um, yeah. So did you have your under the radar pick then? Um, my under the radar pick after some research is Donovan Solano, um, a player I'm not that familiar with, but would play well in Miller Park, um, has what appears to me to be bad positional versatility, um, meaning he could play on the infield kind of anywhere, but isn't great at anything. So um I don't know if he'd cost anything, but he's a free agent, and he looks like he's halfway decent for uh, for the the park profile. Interesting, yeah, I like that. I like that pick because Solano was sort of an important piece for the Giants when they've been outproducing what everybody was expecting these last few years. So he was still with the Giants again last year, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah, no, I knew he was in previous years because he was sort of one of those guys where everybody was like, "Well, we don't know why Donovan Solano is doing this well," and. Uh, providing that much <laughs> offense for us, but he is so okay. Um, all right, moving he has on. Fun platoon splits too. So yeah, 
Yeah. All right. So moving on to um, some Twitter questions, we have Dylan Jacobs asking, um, I'm sure will come up anyways, but free agent targets with the DH officially coming to the National League. We pretty much already touched that, but anybody else you want to mention here? Uh, not above and beyond what my DH ones were, um, other than I do love Andrew McCutcheon and I'd like to see him on the team, but he probably won't be. Sure. Yeah, I, I would be fine with that as well. Um, and then we have McNam 3 is asking, does the DH help or hurt Milwaukee compared to the rest of the NL and the NL Central? And do you think they will go out after a bat only type player like Nelson Cruz? We already took that part of it, but, um, yeah. I know you have some thoughts about this, Paul. You've mentioned this before, but I'd like you to reiterate. Yeah, it, it hurts them. Okay. No problem. It, it hurts them. And, um, also it does hurt them in a couple of ways that we haven't discussed before, which is that. Um, the DH is wanted by the players because it, it is another well-paying position for the players. And the Brewers, being the market that they are, are hurt by having another position open where you can be good by paying money. So yeah, it's not great from that perspective. Um, and I don't think they'll use it that way. I don't think they'll get a, a bat only. I think they'll use it to, for versatility storage more than anything. But aside from that, uh, the Brewers have the best manager. And uh, one of Craig Council's um, advantages that he gives you is in managing things like double switches that when, like when pitchers come up in the order, he's really good at dealing with the consequences of having pitchers come up in the order. He's better at it than basically every other manager in baseball. So um, the DH makes managing easier. It makes, it, it creates far fewer hard calls than you otherwise would have. And uh, it takes a competitive advantage away from Milwaukee for that reason too, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Now, I would say that I think that in terms of man management and making sure that they get the most out of all these guys as they're shuffling them through the DH spot, that they will probably do a very good job of making sure they are using that spot as effectively as they can, and he will be a big part of that. So I think they gain back some of yeah, that would, advantage, but it's probably not as big an advantage as you would get from the other aspect of it, right? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Also, if their bullpen continues to be a great deep bullpen, uh, they should be able to lean on it a little more heavily than they did in the past without having to shuffle guys out artificially uh, by their spots coming up in the order and relying on double switches and running out of position players and things like that. Um, contrast to that, though, um, they were really good at getting sort of um, short outings out of less good pitchers just based on um, platoon splits and things like that to, to, to sort of weather those little tiny spots in between using their big relievers. So uh, it kind of depends on how the team is made up. If they continue to be just a dominant presence uh, uh, bullpen-wise, like just strong, you know, top to bottom, they can, they can make that work. They can get some benefit out of that. But uh, some of their sort of deft maneuvering is going to be neutered by this, and that's, you know, less good. So uh, I do think it, it uh, behooves them to be as loaded as they can in the bullpen. Uh, but it, it it does hurt them. Like they're good at strategy, and this makes less strategy. Okay, yeah, I agree with all that. I think that it does take away some of the advantage that they would have in that way. But I I think they will adjust and figure out the best way to make this work and to play to their advantage as well as anybody will. So, and we've talked yeah. about that as being primarily a thing where they're going to shuffle through guys. I think that is that is primarily going to be the way they're trying to do this. So if you're expecting them to go out and sign, oh, we have a DH now, so we need to sign a DH guy. 
I would roll back those expectations because that's probably not where this is headed, though it does open up the roster to, uh, you know, bringing in additional players uh, just probably not dedicated DH types from the way that, you know, we both think they're going to handle this. So um, Vinny Cornell's asked real quick here. Um, if he wanted to sign real quick after the lockout, would you be in favor of a one-year contract for Anthony Rizzo? Uh, definitely. I like Anthony Rizzo and, uh, I'm not sure I like him for five years, but I'll just, I definitely like him for one or two or three. So yeah, I'd be down with that. Yep. There is no such thing as a bad one year contract and correct. Really the only thing that you could potentially lose here is the roster spot. But even that, like, let's say on the off chance, Anthony Rizzo shows up and he is washed. The bat speed is gone and he is just trash at this point. The Brewers would not sign him to a large enough contract that they would need to uh that they would need to hold on to him and be able to do anything other than treat him as a sunk cost. If they sign him, they're almost certainly going to do it is in such a way that he will be viewed as a sunk cost. And then yeah. they can just do whatever they want with him at that point. So indeed. All right. Um and the last question that we have is actually a holdover from last week and I promised Peter, uh, this is Peter Divine on Twitter asked this. I promised him we would work it in cuz he sent it while we were recording last week. So um here we go. And this is a really interesting one. Um he's asking is Yelly an obvious choice to lead off next year? Both his slugging and on-base percentage were in the mid to upper 300s last year and he got on base more than Wong. Maybe it would help him with the pitchers trying harder not to walk him in that spot. This is, of course, predicated on Stearns getting another bat. I think it's worth a try. Um, he certainly still seems to have the pitch recognition. He's working his way on base. And your leadoff hitter is more valuable just by getting on base than contributing with power and stuff like that. Um, it would also be interesting to see if the old-timey um, pitchers challenging leadoff hitters more maybe awakens his bat a little bit. But I think it's a good idea to get value out of him, um, given what his skill set is apparently, you know, devolved into at this point. So, yeah, I would give it a shot. Well, and here's the other thing. And this is now we can add this in because this wouldn't have been part of the discussion last week before we had the DH. Now that we do, we know that in front of him is going to be, if he is leading off, we know that the number nine hitter is going to be a hitter, not a not a pitcher, not a guy who is just there also holding true. a bat, uh, likely often ending innings. You know, that is that is a thing that often happens. Leadoff hitters are still the most common spot to come up to lead off an inning, even if you take out the first inning effect. They they are still if you take out the first even the first time through the order, leadoff hitters still come up more. Uh, than any other position after the the first time through the order. So you definitely do not worry as much with him coming up in that position. Um, if you have, there's going to be runners on, I think it, it, it slants it a little bit more towards uh, you can have him in that position and not worry about him coming up with the bases empty quite so much. So I think that also helps. And would mm -hmm. yep. be a, a, a factor in favor of this. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't. You can just move him back. So I mean, it, it's not like we're talking about some permanent change. Like try it, see if it does any good. If it doesn't, then pop him back and work on the swing some more. 
Yep. And I think that there is a very real chance here. And I, I did want to point out to you, Paul, I, uh, people have been banging down my door to get Christian Yelich in a uh, long-running Dynasty League where I just joined this year and I inherited him to my team. And I've told everybody <laughs> that he is off the trade block. He is he is not going to be traded. You can stop <laughs> asking about him. Uh, I am betting on the, the comeback for him this year. So you could just keep okay. your, your hands off of him. So I am I am putting my my money where my mouth is on this. I think that he is going to have a bounce back season. And I think that that's largely going to make this an irrelevant discussion point because I think he's pretty much going to be hitting second as the Brewers want to do with him. He, he hit second in his great run of 2000 uh, in 18 and 2019. He hit second more commonly than he hit anywhere else, because that's where you put your best hitter. Now is the second spot yeah. in the lineup. So your best all around hitter. So I think we're going to see right. him more there than elsewhere anyway, and that's good, and that's fine. But sure, if you want to have him lead off at least to start the year to see if that like gets him into a better frame of mind and you know, approaching things better and maybe takes a little pressure off of him to be that power hitter, great. No problem here. All right. Well, that does it for this week for us. We got a long episode for you, even without James. Well, that probably is because we're without James. We just let ourselves <laughs> run at the mouth a bit here. Um, we do want to thank uh, our new patron, Andrew Merker. Um, I'm assuming not related to Kent, but maybe, you know, if you are related to Kent, you can uh, you can let us know that. And maybe we can, uh, I don't know, would we have any reason to interview Kent Merker? Was he ever a brewer? I don't think he was. No. Hmm. Okay. But he was one of those Braves pitchers I feel like remember that, that. in the 90s. Yeah. Yep. So, Andrew, maybe you are related to Kent. Who knows? Um, but anyway, um, and we would appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating for this podcast. Paul will read literally anything that you write for him in the review if you give us five stars. Were there any new reviews to read this week, Paul? Sure was. Oh, uh, we've got one from the uh, the GB roster, the GB G broster. Um, we have a five star review. It is attempting to get me to sing for sure. We'll see. Um, it, it is entitled Brewers Fever. Amazing podcast by some awesome guys. Everyone, please feel free to sing along. Stomp your feet. Clap your hands. You're part of the team sitting in the stands. Come see what's brewing. See what the good times are. Come see what the Brewers are doing. Come on and cheer a superstar. <laughs> it's hard it is hard to say without singing it be a believer in brewer fever it's fun to join the cheer and stop your feet clap your hands you're a part of the team sitting in the stands you wrote the whole thing um come catch the fever the fever <laughs> we're brewing is for everyone you'll be a believer in brewer fever you feel the excitement of the big home run stopping your feet clapping your hands we have to put a character limit on this in the future um <laughs> You're part of the team sitting in the stands. Come see what's brewing, the Milwaukee Brewers. Come catch the fever. The fever we're brewing is for everyone. You'll be a believer in brewer fever. You feel the excitement of the big home run. Stopping your feet, clapping your hands. You're part of the team sitting in the stands. Come see what's brewing, the Milwaukee Brewers. Thank you for all the fun and the amazing labor talk. And then um, emoji looking up. All right. All right. So, so he's not a fan of the labor talk then? Or are we just going to take that at face value? It's sarcastic, but it's fine. All right. It has to happen. There's there's labor talk to happen. Yep. Okay. <sighs> yep. All right. So, All right. so that was... uh, just just for the future, 
if anybody's thinking of putting a five-star review and writing like all of Moby Dick, uh, I reserve the right to truncate it to a reasonable length. All right. That is good to know. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I certainly had fun with it, though. So that is a joke that somebody <laughs> needed to, to get on eventually, right? Like that was inevitably going to happen. So we've got that out of the way and it's good and done yep. with now. So, all right. Well, um, while you're there giving a review, you can hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, or wherever else you get your podcast. As always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time on Milwaukee's Tailgate.